Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene with his hair. Winter's Mr. Kari's me. I cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones series reflection. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we take a look back at the 10 years of magic, intrigue, and dragons. We wanted to come back one last time to put a nice capper not only on season 8, but on our series as a whole. We'll start up by wrapping up season 8, giving our Raven ratings, what do we rate it, as well as our MVB, this was too hard. To do just one four-person poll, and in fact, even that doesn't quite cover it, but we broke it up between characters who are living or dead by the end of the series. Each one gets an MVB, and we'll go through your poll results as well. Then we'll have a great time looking at all the things we were wrong about. In our Series 8 prepper, we gave predictions. First, we had a live-or-die category for every character what Jason and I thought would be their fate. So we'll see what the numbers were on that, as well as some interesting theories that we put forward at the beginning of the season, pretty much all of them wrong. And then we'll go over to a series reflection. Things like what were our top five favorite episodes or moments from the entirety of season one through eight. And our Clatchers had a chance to give us theirs as well. So I'm very intrigued to see if they match ours. I'm intrigued to see if anyone put in a season eight episode. Oh, yeah, that would be interesting to find out. We will also talk about certain open threads. And we're not talking about Sansa's new dress. (laughs) (laughs) Although we are going to discuss that. Topics that perhaps we didn't quite get all the resolution we were looking for. Things like the prophecies, the direwolves. However, we don't want to just rehash everything we've been talking about all season. This is what we didn't get to see. This is what we wish we had seen. So we're only pulling things where I still have some book knowledge, Jason, that I've held back from you. (laughs) It's not a lot. We've gone over much over the course of these many years. But there are a couple of big things that I can fill you in on where we were at for the books up until this point. That means there's going to be book spoilers in there. Even though all is said and done with, I think there are still certain people who are waiting to go back and read the book series now that the TV show is done. Maybe they'll even wait until when and if Martin releases the final two books. I'm going to just read those. I'm not going to start all over. That seems too difficult, too much work. So I'll start with the next one that comes out. Well, makes a lot of sense. Now I can get you fully caught up. There's those last couple of things and nothing Red Wedding type spoiler. You don't have to be that afraid, but if you are worried and you don't want to hear it, we're going to put a timestamp on our episode description so that you know where that's going to occur. Because there will be a little more after that. We will have the Clatchers comments. That will give us a chance to reflect on some of the other topics as well, and we'll close it out with our overall thoughts. So let's kick this off by talking about our ratings. At the end of each season, we go through, and first we average up what the critics were saying. So if you look at all the episodes, IMDb comes out to an average of 7.7 for this season. And Rotten Tomatoes, a 75%. Okay, not too bad. That's really not as bad as I thought it was going to be. 
I guess it's bad for Game of Thrones standards, though. Well, they were still in the nines for the first three episodes. It really wasn't until The Bells, episode five, and then six, that they went down into the six, five, four region. So it it all sort of balanced out. And I think the same thing happened with our ratings. You might be a little surprised to find out when I averaged. I was at an 8.5 and you an 8.7. That's really up there. That's still very high. Just as a point of comparison, last season seven, I was at a 9.4 and you a 9.3. Okay. That's pretty damn high. Yeah. We love Game of Thrones. And our MVB for that season was John. So now we'll go over to our MVB, our most valuable bannerman for season eight. You and I can follow along according to our poll choices. So we did two polls, one for characters who are still alive and the other for characters who have passed. Starting with Alive, we have Jon, Drogon, Arya, and Tyrion. Arguably, we probably could have put eight other ones up there. (laughs) Coming in with 9% is Drogon. I kind of had a feeling when we had a whole series breakdown, you know, Drogon was not born for some of it, then a little baby. He he did some epic things. He did kill the slave master. Last year, he did some amazing things. But I can see that there's other characters that have contributed more. Coming in third place, a close third with 27% is John. I think this is entirely due to the last season. I know. And maybe even the last couple of episodes, which is unfortunate in my mind. I'm trying not to let that weigh more heavily to balance out everything that these characters have done. Yeah, because he's done a lot. From... Being resurrected from the dead, and you can say he didn't do that himself, but still, that's something that happened to his character. Yes. He was the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. I'll say arguably, I, I didn't do this research, so I might be wrong, but I'm pretty confident that he was in the most wars of any of our characters. And lived through them. Whether or yes. not you want to say he was victorious, he made it through. That's a big accomplishment in this world. He was the Lord Commander He rallied the entirety of the North, including the wildlings, behind him to a cause, which still stands out as one of the most monumentous things to me. Oh, yeah. We can't forget how difficult that was. In a world where sometimes lords can't even get their bannermen to rally behind Mm. them for a cause. We had been enemies with the wildlings for a long time. And I don't just mean they fought for him. If you look by the end of the series, Tormund and the rest of them have accepted Jon as one of them. You could potentially argue he is the next... Mance Raider, that's one interpretation of how things wind up for him. And while we don't like it and we can make mm-hmm. arguments about what happened to Danny's character, he overcame both his love for her as well as this deep innate sense that John has had with him the entire series of what is right, even after he kills her, something that he felt needed to be done in order to save the people. He's going to grapple with that decision forever. But he did do it, and then he, he basically agreed to exile himself. Coming in right above John with 28% is Tyrion. I think it makes complete sense that he's up there. We got to remember, I believe he was one of the first filled cast members. I think he's top build yeah. on the series when the episodes come up, Peter Dinklage's name. And he's been integral in every season. He's had his fingers in everything. You could say he's almost the thread that runs through some of these seemingly disparate stories. 
He connects houses that are at odds with each other. He travels from King's Landing up to Winterfell and then north all the way to the Wall. No other character is moving around the map like that Mm -hmm. so early on. I know we had a lot of that in later seasons. But then even from Westeros to Essos to tie in Danny's storyline. He's one of two characters who actually went to Valeria. Yeah, he's literally seen the world. He's served several rulers, managed to be the person behind the scenes. And he was the hand three times? If you count this last one, yeah. yes, he was hand to Joffrey in Tywin's place, then to Danny, and now to Bran at the end of the series. So not only surviving it all, but in a position of power and authority, I think the only reason perhaps that he doesn't win is because of influence of the last few seasons. What got him this far is the fact that his character was so incredibly intelligent. Mm. And then the past few seasons, he just inexplicably starts doing dumb things. Seasons or episodes? Seasons? Arguably seasons. Okay. I mean, you know, some of his advice to Danny ever since he started serving her has not been completely sound. Leading her to question him, thinking maybe he's even betraying her. Although he really helped with Maureen. I think he was very... He did, and and things didn't always go well there, but that was a tough Mm -hmm. situation. And when we talk about areas that Benioff and Weiss had to start developing on their own, how sometimes the writing fell short once they lost Martin's map. Martin's self-proclaimed biggest difficulty was getting out of that corner he wrote himself into in Marine. He called it the Miranese Knot. How do you get her away from all this stuff that's been established there? How do you get her to Westeros? How do you have her power not be too strong? Regardless of what you thought of that, they managed to do that pretty successfully to get her out of that country. And I think that a big portion of that was thanks to Tyrion. But coming in first place with 36% is Arya. Well, you could make some of the same arguments for her, a character who has traveled the world, seen many things, overcome much adversity. Wore many hats, or, I mean, faces. (laughs) I think what's difficult there is she spent a good portion of that journey tracking down vengeance. Yes, Tyrion had times like that as well, but they were also balanced with times where he was trying to support a new vision or Mm. make a better ruler or make the kingdom slightly better off than perhaps it would have been without him. You remind me, I read an article. It's a while back now, so apologies, I forgot the name of it where they made a point of showing that throughout the series, anyone who was fighting for vengeance ended up dying. Pretty much every character except for Arya. Yeah, or being severely punished for it. And not that she didn't go through adversity, but she really didn't have to face either of those two fates. She got to reunite with her family, she got to live through the wars, and she got her relatively happy ending of sailing to west of Westeros by the end of the story. For goodness sakes, she killed the Night King. I think some of the unbelievability of that was what I struggled with because I do love her character. I always have. I think she's one of the best written in the books and her journey is compelling. But I think they almost made her too big in the TV show, too unkillable and larger than life. Maybe this season. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Because we were worried for her last season. For sure. Absolutely. I was like, she's going to die. She's going to die. And I think you (laughs) needed that. You needed the fact that she still was, at that point, a girl alone in the world, no matter how highly trained she was. Uh, You're making enemies of the House of Black and White. Mm. You have a kill list for some of the most powerful people in the world. I mean, just think back to her being at Harrenhal, disguising herself right in front of Tywin, how many times she was this close 
to being found out and potentially dying. That's part of what made that journey so interesting though, right? Absolutely. By this season, when she's fighting undead zombie walkers, I know they're not going to kill Arya. They're just not. And she can run through the streets of King's Landing and have buildings seemingly fall on top (laughs) of her and she's going to come out of it okay. Removing the stakes, I think, makes it at times less compelling, perhaps. But if you want to root for somebody that's really overcome all of that and has managed to change her track from vengeance to something greater... She is one of the best people that we can point to by the end of the series. I don't think I've ever run across somebody who said, well, I really didn't like the character of Arya. (laughs) No, no. You know what's funny? She plays a character in Doctor Who, and her fate was very similar. Mm, Yeah. A traveler in the end. So we have some Clatcher's comments, but before we go through that, Christina, who is your MVB for the living? I am so tightly pulled here in the same direction as this poll between Jon and Tyrion. I'm going to go ahead and overcome my recency bias and say John. That's because you want him. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's, that's a thing too as well. But I just think perhaps he didn't get the credit, the final closeout that we were looking for in this season. But I have thoroughly enjoyed his character start to finish. I think that he has been a true representation of the Stark family, which is pretty amazing to think about. We started off looking at him as Jon Snow. Is he even part of the Starks? And then we find out that he's actually a Targaryen, Mm -hmm. but he's still a Stark and he goes out as a Stark, but then also something more, you know, of the true North. It's just still been a beautiful journey following his character. Well, Christina, I am still having issues as well. You almost swayed me to go Jon. And he was my MVB last year. I kind of want to go Arya because I feel like her storyline throughout all of the series has always been so interesting. When she was with the Hound, when she was with the Faceless Gods, I was always wondering what she's going to do next. Such a badass fighter. But then there's Tyrion, who had, I think, the funniest lines throughout all of the season. <laughs> I loved his drinking. Reminds me of me. Not really. I couldn't fault you for going either of these characters. And I, the intellect taking such a hit not even just in this season, is mm-hmm. the only thing that pulled me back from going Tyrion? Yeah, I'm going to go Arya. That's it. I feel confident. That's my choice. That's a good choice. <laughs> so what do the Clatchers say? Orin says, my vote goes to Tyrion. Out of the four in the poll, he's the only one that made shit happen. While Jon, Arya, and Drogon, sorry Jason, just reacted or were controlled by others. I think, again, that's looking so much just at season eight. Yeah. And if we were going season eight, then 100%, I think I'd be Arya. My train of thought was, who did I really enjoy all the time on screen Mm -hmm. and their storyline? And I think it was Arya for me. And all four of these choices, even Drogon, like you said, they are characters whenever they're on screen, we are interested. Oh, yeah. Can't wait to see what happens next. Fearing severely for their fate. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't live if you take this character from me. (laughs) I just can't. Sherry Ava says, my runner-up is Arya, who metamorphosed from a tom-girl child to an independent force to be respected. She learned how to take care of herself and protected or avenged those she cared for. She was a Stark and eliminated threats to the family, from Walder Frey to the Night King. Yeah, that Walder Frey scene. Oh, love it. And Littlefinger. And she's got that uh, picture to prove it. Jenna says, this was a tough one. In the end, I went with Arya because she's just a badass. And she did capital D-I-D, save everyone by killing the Night King. Tyrion is a close second, were it not for his constant defense of Cersei and his numerous Mm. mistakes in the last couple of seasons, he would have been it. Yeah, I hear you. Although Peaches and Plums makes the opposite argument, this was an easier choice than I thought. Tyrion all the way. He rose from his beginnings and altered the course of the kingdoms. He gets my vote every time. 
Yeah, he was the often ignored and often just dismissed in the family, if you remember, in the beginning. Not just the family. We find out by the end of the story, the Archmaester doesn't even talk about him yeah. in the history of all these wars. Brian T. has my same problem. He says, I was split between John and Tyrion. Both had triumphs and failures. Both found themselves in positions they didn't want to be and persevered. Both did the right things at the times it mattered the most. And Q saying the same, voted for Tyrion, but if it wasn't for this season, it would have been John. John had the best story from the fantasy perspective, but since they decided to abandon that, Tyrion was the most influential and interesting character. This was exactly my issue. When they abandon the fantasy aspects and the lore, mm. no character suffers more than John. That's correct, yeah. The Long Knight, the prince who was promised, the Targaryen lineage, I mean, R plus L equals J. Uh, we kind of could have not had that and still had the same exact story here. So that is really tough. Whereas Tyrion still has his whole complete arc minus right. that. Yes. Um, so I totally see what you're saying. And I wonder if that really affected Kit. Like this last season, I think it hurt him too. Yeah. Emotionally. He seemed to really struggle with that. Maybe more than any other actor that was coming to terms with what was going to happen. Yeah. Amanda says, I voted for John. I think he was the core of this story. There's a quote from A Clash of Kings out of one of Danny's visions when she sees Rhaegar speaking with Ares about a newborn baby being held by a woman in a great wooden bed. Aegon, he said to the woman nursing the babe, what better name for a king? Will you make a song for him? The woman asked. He has a song, the man replied. He is the prince that was promised and his is the song of ice and fire. That tells it all, where yeah. John was supposed to be versus where he wound up. And it's so hard to explain to other people. And I don't mean to sound like I'm a book reader, blah, blah. I know there's a lot of that going around. <laughs> it's just because you didn't get what you want, blah, blah, blah. It's more about the complexity, how it's built into all of these things. It's not just a passing prophecy. His was the song of ice and fire. Yeah. So am I upset about Arya killing the Night King? No, I'm just upset that I feel for the sake of subverting the expectations and surprise, we now squashed something that was being gardened and tended for seven seasons long. Yeah. You know, that's, that's hard. And finally, Sherry Avis says, my vote is for Tyrion. Although all those in the poll played significant parts to keep the plot moving. Tyrion started out the series saying the world sees him as useless but his mind was his greatest power and he continued to use that to shape the future of the realm. Hear, hear. Well said. So you can make an argument for any of them and I'll agree. Truly, I wouldn't disagree with any of those choices. But also I'm a Libra, so I have issues making final decisions. <laughs> so let's move on to our poll for the characters who have died. Now this one was a really difficult one because there were so many characters. We could go back to Ned Stark and say, arguably, that Ned started it all. We had to put the disclaimer on ourselves mm -hmm. that it would only be characters who made it up to season eight. That was the only way to keep it contained. So our four characters were Danny, Cersei, the Night King, and Varys. Again, I don't think I'm going to disagree with an argument towards any one of these. 9% and last place is the Night King. The Night King with his, not to sound like a broken record, if the Night King had the storyline that we were waiting for and didn't just turn into a regular baddie, I think would have been higher up on there. Yes, killing him off just in episode three. He doesn't truly get a backstory. He just wants to take everyone off the board. I see why it went this way. And honestly, I, I still want to hear him talk. I really hoped it was a really high voice because I just think that would be hilarious. We're going to talk a little more later about the others from the books. Here coming in third place with 19% is Varys. Again, talk about a character who 
from season one, his interactions with Littlefinger, the way he plays the game behind the scenes, we were never bored of watching him and wondering, what is he up to? I love his voice and his cadence. It's just beautiful. And we mentioned in the finale, we don't even know for sure until the final season, the final episode, he truly was for the realm and the people all the time. I mean, it was hard to, to get a read on, is he telling the truth about that or not? We thought we might even see repercussions of his final act ripple out after his death. Uh, we didn't get that, but... Yeah, we thought for sure that letter led somewhere. But in the end, everyone knew anyway, so it didn't matter. And I love how if you look at our two lists, and this wasn't really intentional, there's a lot more black and white with our live characters. We talk about how there are no black and white characters on Game of Thrones, but you said often, well, except for John, he's yeah. pretty much all good. And Arya, despite her struggles, Tyrion, despite everything he's overcome, we kind of always know their intentions are good. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry. They're just going to like morph over to the dark side at any moment. Whereas the characters on this list were very, very gray. There was a lot of mix. Again, maybe not the Night King in this version. We don't get to know any of a backstory to him. He just exists for what he is. But we can hope in our fan fiction, right? Coming into second place with 23%, the hated Cersei. There was only one time this whole series where I almost felt bad for her. Really? And rooted for her. I'm surprised. See, I think in season eight, she did go 100% bad guy. There's nothing left for me to care about. But while certainly less so than someone like Jamie, I did always wonder, am I supposed to be feeling bad for her? This walk of shame, this place she's found herself in. Mm. I never quite knew what was going on in her headspace. And I always thought that moment was going to come where I would say, I get Cersei. I get what happened to her. We didn't get that wrap up in season eight. Well, I think they alluded to it. It was the loss of her children. That was her biggest love. That's what meant the most to her, her children. But she was very dynamic and interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I loved her as a character, but I loved to hate her. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, coming in first place, to no one's surprise, with 49% is Danny. To me, Danny will always be the breaker of chains. It's just, it's this is my world, my life. I'm ignoring the fact that she went It's another Series 8 twister. (laughs) I do believe we're going to get a similar path in the books just unfolding slowly and probably more satisfactorily. And I can see how I'm going to love to hate that storyline. I'm going to say, don't do this to her, but it's all going to make sense. Again, maybe making her a bit more gray with more to grapple with is very interesting. We always talk about when a character gets too much power and rises too high, they're invincible. Yep, It's not fun anymore. You can't write around that. So having a better system of taking that down a few notches and seeing what happens to her, I think in the books is going to be a journey. So I'm going to start this one and I'm just going to straight up say Danny. She is my MVB for characters who have passed. I loved her storyline from beginning to end. There was actually, uh, well, there was a book where she was not in it. There was a whole book where there's nothing about Danny. Right? Yes, that's correct because... Your, your two final books that George has written is the same time frame, but following a different set of characters. Right. So half of them are in the first book, half of them are in the second book. And she's had some very epic scenes and hashtag dragons. Yeah, I think given my last pick of John, I too have to go Danny here. And I know that George begged people never to boil this book down to its two most essential elements because that is inherently what this book is not. Mm-hmm. 
but it is largely following those two storylines. I could not in good faith say I would be anywhere near as interested in reading these books if we didn't have those two characters. Yeah, They're linchpins. Absolutely. Just speaking TV show-wise, all of our characters inevitably were intertwined with at least one of them. Absolutely. Over to the Clatchers, Amanda says, I voted for Danny. She's my favorite character from the show and the books. She had so many amazing moments, such as birthing her dragons to getting the Unsullied. She started out as a scared girl on the run and became a Khaleesi with many titles and accomplishments. And she had the best outfits, let's be honest. Oh, for sure. Brian T. says, without question, it was Danny. She drove the storyline and created one of the existential crises of the realm. Granted, Cersei and the Night King also did, but the Night King really only became a serious threat in Season 7, and Cersei wasn't likely to burn Westeros down. Ooh, I have to disagree a little bit there. I think the Night King himself was not the threat from the beginning, but the Army of the Dead, the White Walkers, that whole thing... Yeah was the very first opening scene we ever got in books and TV. Dispatched quickly in the third episode here, but that's eight seasons of a looming threat of darkness and evil. Winter's coming. And after Cersei blew up the Sept last season, Mm -hmm. I began to think, yeah, she could burn them all too. She could go real Mad King. I don't have dragons, but I've got wildfire. She very nearly did. They kind of removed her a little bit from that ability here in this season. But she's still constantly amassing whatever forces she can. The Golden Company, the crossbows. <laughs> she just never stops scheming. That's a terrifying character. But as far as driving the storyline forward, I would agree with you that Danny wins out. You know, my ringtone for only when my boss calls me is burn them all. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Q says Varys because he kept it interesting and sneaky. Feel like they owed him more screen time, though, and wish they'd fleshed out his man of the people attitude. Like all problems with this show and season, just not enough time. Sherry Ava says, this is an impossible choice. I'm torn between Cersei the supervillain, heartless queen with a black heart, and Danny, who stole our hearts, birthed dragons, freed slaves, and massacred her enemies and innocents alike. Oh, wow. Well said. In the end, I voted for Danny because her mere existence continually moved the storyline. Then she birthed dragons, freed slaves, brought the unsullied, allowed us to fall in love with Missandei, and dazzled us along with Jon Snow. Dracaris. Oh, and she has a great gift with all three dragons. Those were the days. Oh, man. So continuing to reflect on this season eight, Jason, we made some foolish predictions <laughs> back in our prepper episode. But it was fun, wasn't it? It was tons of fun. And I'm not doing this to say we were right about this or wrong about anything. It's just fun to look back and see where our mindset was at the time. But you know, maybe we should pull a Brienne because history is the truth told by those telling the history. So we will just re-record the prepper (laughs) and have every answer correct. No, we were pretty bad on some of these. We had 35 characters that we went through, and we said if we thought they would live or die. I'll just run through it quickly. For the mountain, we both said die. We were correct. For the hound, we both said died. Beric Dondarrion, both said died. Torment, we both said died, and we were wrong. Yep. Gendry, we both said live. Dolorous Ed, we both said live. But we only have two wrong out of that so far. That's pretty good. So far, we're about to hit a wrong streak (laughs) here coming up because our thoughts were a lot of these second tier characters who were predominantly warriors or... We envisioned them being in the front line. Would be in the front lines, right. We thought would be taken out. 
And they were in the front line. They just weren't taken out. And some of them maybe looked like they were going to be lived against all odds. For instance, Pod, we both said die. Brienne and Grey Worm, we both said die. Masande, we both said died, though I don't think we thought in that fashion yeah. at all. Bronn and Davos, we both said died and both lived. I think we had put that on the character of Ed, the survive against all odds type. Jorah, Mormont, and Euron Greyjoy, we both said died. We were right about those. We said die to both Yara and Theon, so it turns out we were wrong about Yara. Kyburn, we thought would live as another of those sneaky, he always manages to get around it type thing. <laughs> <laughs> we both said die to Melisandre. We said live to Gilly, Sam, and Bran. So we were right in those. We were right on all of those. We said live to Arya, right about that. We both said die to Sansa because we thought there's no way all the Stark kids can make it out alive. And mm -hmm. it's going to come down to one sister. That's right. We were choosing between the sisters who would be more likely to live. We thought Arya's a fighter, so <clears throat> maybe she could get out of this. But we were wrong on that account. And here's where the predictions start to split. And this is the reason why I wound up doing better on this poll than you. Jamie. I said die, you said live. Cersei, I said die, you said live. Tyrion, I said live, you said die. Oh, man. Danny, we both thought would die, but John, I thought live, you thought die. And the Night King, we both said died. When it came to the dragons, we both agreed that Rhaegal and Viserion would probably die, but I had Drogon to live. Yeah, which I'm happy for. You very grudgingly said, I'm sad, but I think we'll lose all the dragons. You know what, though? Still looking over these, I'm not embarrassed by them because my reasoning. see where the reasoning yeah. is. Yeah. What did I say about Danny again? You thought that both John and Danny would have to go down in this final fire and ice scenario. And I said, Cersei live. You said, Jesus. I hate this, but I think that she could make it through this entire thing. It felt very Her Game of Thronesy Because of their scheming. Yeah. Yeah. And then for dire wolves, we both thought Nymeria would live, but we both thought Ghost would die. Well, I'm glad we were wrong on that. Yeah, me too. So that brings the grand total. Me, 23 out of 35, and you, 18 out of 35. That's not a good grade. <laughs> well... We, neither one of us really did that fantastically, but we actually did worse on our theories, our expanded theories. <laughs> so we both thought that we might end this whole thing with Sam writing the Book of Ice and Fire to share his knowledge, along with John going north to make sure that his people would never forget about the Long Night. So we thought he might rule all of the north, including Winterfell, the Wall. These people would have to be around to explain this threat is still there in some fashion and you can't forget about it in another 8,000 years. Yeah. Well, because that reminds me, and I wanted to say this in our last podcast and I keep forgetting. In my mind, obviously we don't get to see Sansa and what she's doing now as a ruler, but in my mind, there's a room, a nice big room in the castle that has all the dragon glass left over from the war, along with scrolls and pictures, depictions of the long night, all on display. And this is an open room where people can come in and look kind of like a museum. Mm. And there's a certain grade where you go there. The students always go there to learn about the long night. And that's her way of making sure no one ever forgets. That's an amazing idea. Maybe the crypts, since they're destroyed now, you could remodel that whole thing. It, yeah. it was always a place of remembrance, a place to honor the Starks, but now it's the entire history laid out there. I think that if we had gotten to see something like that, I would have felt a lot better about Sansa ruling in the North. Yeah, I wanted to feel like she holds on to all of that heritage and finds it so important. And again, just like with anything else, having the 
complete removal of the threat of the White Walkers, that existential threat being gone forever, I feel like it leaves a lot of characters spinning their wheels, especially the Starks and anyone in the North. We no longer have that as a purpose in life. And that, that's a little bit tough. I think we've learned, one, that's very dark that you still want the White Walkers alive. But two, of course I think- they do. <laughs> of course they do. This whole story is founded on this gigantic threat of the bad, the yeah. darkness, and our heroes to fight back against us. Who are our heroes without an enemy to fight? Well, I would argue that this show did a really good job at reminding us over and over again that humans are evil enough that we constantly have to worry about them. Oh, for sure. For sure. But it had this multi-tiered, mm-hmm. you know, it was fantasy and real life. It was all of these things. That mishmash and, uh, and bringing it to realization in such a beautiful way is, I think, what Martin does different than most books you're ever going to read. Coming back to predictions, I thought Arya would fight. We both agreed she probably wouldn't be on the front line. She would use her sneak tactics. And you thought she might be wounded severely, but saved by Nymeria and the wolf pack. Yeah, that was hoping, huh? So we were half right on that. We were. And we're going to come back to talk about that later. We both agreed we thought episodes one through three would be the fight against the undead, while four through six would be the fight for the Iron Throne. Boy, we were all too right on that account. (laughs) I thought that when we saw the reanimated dead, it would include a huge gut punch by bringing back an emotional character such as Hodor or Rickon. No dice. I thought that Danny would save John with a dragon, but then have to sacrifice herself so that he could forge Lightbringer to defeat Eat the, the Night, Night King. King. I think that would have been cool. <laughs> I also thought that John might have to volunteer to become the next replacement Night King. As soon as I heard that theory, I thought, oh, this is so John. Yeah. He's going to have to risk it all, sacrifice himself. You thought Melisandre would come back to help out with her magic in the big fight. She did. You get a big point for that yeah. one. Yeah. We both thought that there were certain side stories that would probably only get passing mention, not a lot of attention, though perhaps would be more elaborated in the books, such as the Greyjoys, Dorne, and the Faceless Men. I think we're right on that, Big right on for that. You thought Cersei would survive and would in fact be reigning until the very end when Jaime would have to kill her. Do you see how uh, flip-floppy I was? In one hand, I said they're both going to live. And then in my theory, I'm like... Well, no, you said both live until the very, very end. Oh, I see. And then... After the wars and all that, that's when... Yeah. Like episode... Six. six Six-ish. Yeah. He would kill her. And I said I thought Tyrion would live, survive it all, and be ruling in something more like a democracy. Very close. I was pretty right on that. Yeah. That's probably my closest one. I'm still, and I'm never going to get over this, how they dropped the ball on Bran. Bran is a big thing. It's a big thing that we're not going to talk about in detail here. We did get the news that Isaac Hempstead Wright confirmed this was a storyline from George's books. About Bran? Bran being the king. Yes, but um, the whole having Bran never freaking speak or anything and saying, it's not my place, I live in the past now, to... Oh, you know what? It is my place. I'm the fucking king. What's up? I think it's more about (laughs) the fact that we didn't learn enough on him as the three-eyed raven. It's back to the fantasy elements Mm -hmm. of we didn't get enough of that. We didn't get enough of the warging into the direwolves and the creatures like we did in the books. We didn't learn about the backstory fully of the children and the White Walkers. We got the one scene to seeing how the Night King was created. It was so intriguing. We spent the rest of the time saying, when are we going to hear the (laughs) remainder of that, right? Some of these visions that were left so open that we don't. And we could hear it from Bran. We have to assume all the children of the forest are gone. 
we have to assume Bran is going to be the last three-eyed raven. And what does that even mean? Another vision that Bran got, learning about John's parentage at the Tower of Joy. Thrilling. Even people that weren't book readers knew about R plus L equals J and Mm -hmm. were through the roof to see the Tower of Joy. That's incredible. A thing that they never even read about before doesn't wind up having much bearing. So I think these are the things that we just wanted more explored. We agreed these points would probably be where George comes to. The yeah. downfall of Danny, Bran is king. It's just how do we get there that will be very different. And he gets the final say, which is very apropos. That final scene in episode six, when John's going back into that forest with his wildling friends, I think if we had poking out of one of the trees, one of the children of the corn... I think that would have been awesome. (laughs) Children of the Forest. I would have loved to see that inkling of not all the children dying and not all the White Walkers dying. You know, the cyclic nature that George has always talked about in these books. History repeats itself. Do we learn from it or do we not? That's a big part of breaking the wheel. Not that things will necessarily always change. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be the big categories of good and evil Mm -hmm. and where does the balance lie and how do we figure out how to do things differently but in order for us to fight back against that and change something we need those two big things on the board right i mean maybe uh john's next baby will have blue eyes hmm. then we'll be like oh shit yeah there's (laughs) a lot of speculating we could do about that speaking of that last scene with john we both kind of thought it at the time when we were breaking down the finale that the future was ambiguous. You could choose to see it as him going on a ranging and returning to the wall or going on an indefinite ranging to be with the wildlings and Mm -hmm. perhaps even lead them. We were leaning towards the latter. Yes. But after watching that scene again, I am actually 100% convinced that he is doing that. I didn't realize the symbology. Remember how they're cutting back and forth between him, Arya, and Sansa? Yes. They're very deliberately showing... Santa walking out in front of these people that she will now be the leader of Mm. all of the North. She's going to be the new queen in the North and she's walking out to the assembly and everybody hailing the queen in the North. That's her future. That is her future and is showing it visually her people. Then they have Arya who's going to be captaining her own ship. She's walking out amongst all Mm. of these people, readying the ship, (laughs) raising her flags, moving off into her her future West adventure. Yeah. And then you have John leaving the wall, leaving the watch. Yes, wearing his blacks, but walking out in front of the wildlings and they clear a path for him to ride out on his horse with Tormund to the front, into the trees, into the woods. That's his future, his people. So Absolutely. I think now I'm totally sold on that. I like it. And speaking of some of those topics that we didn't fully close out, you sent me a great article on Nerdist.com about the imagery of Sansa's dress in those final scenes. Yeah, actually a Clatcher sent it to us, Claudio. This is amazing because we love to talk about costuming and I actually said this was a big part of those last scenes I enjoyed because of the symbolism I caught, but there was so much more to it than even I realized. I remember jokingly saying, that's a lot to put on a dress. (laughs) A lot of weight for symbolism, but... Man, there's even more happening here. It's so beautiful, too. It turns out it's comprised of elements of Sansa's past and all the people that have influenced her to the point she is now. Well, then you could argue, and I'll let you get through this in a second, but moments ago we were talking about Sansa and you were saying, I wish they showed us more that she would be, what did you say, like... um, Almost holding the history, the way Bran says he does for the entire kingdom, she would for the North. So the dress is kind of symbolism that she's doing that. Absolutely, That's that's why I like this. Starting with the people who maybe weren't so great, but still had an influence on her nonetheless, Cersei. 
There is the same simplicity and entwined design similar to Cersei's crown that she wore for her coronation in season six. Absolutely. Only Sansa's now has interlacing direwolves instead of lions. They admitted this one was a little bit of a stretch, but they thought the collar was reminiscent of Littlefinger's folded shirts. Mm. And actually, if you look at the design of it, I think that's correct. The high way that it kind of wraps over each other looks very much like what Littlefinger used to wear. I can dig it. Marjorie. And we know that she was very influenced by Marjorie. There is a plant-like pattern to the whole dress. Yes. That's the same fabric of Marjorie's wedding dress. And we're not talking about the leaves of the tree. We're talking about the faint pattern the throughout it. The actual fabric itself, yeah. Yeah. At first glance, it kind of looks like scales, but no, it's not. Well, and then you also have the scaly nature, which is another symbolism of itself, to the Tully symbol, which is a fish. So it could almost look like the scales of a fish, plus parts of the dress is blue, the Tully colors. Yes. However, the rest of it is that grayish tone, which is the Stark color. And more obviously, you have the dire wolves as well as the red leaves, the first thing we saw that looked like the weirwood tree. So cool. So there's a lot to that. And we talk about costuming in many different areas. I noticed but didn't dive fully into the fact that this is also reflected in the Kingsguard, the attire of which changes once again. It's gone through many changes when Bran ascends to the throne. Now you have this the whole thing is gold, which it always is, but there's almost different shades, different styles of gold. This is a very light, shiny sort of gold that you see Brienne and Pod wearing. And the breastplate now sports a three-eyed raven, which I didn't notice. That's so cool. Interestingly, though, they lack their signature white cloaks. That was a big thing, and I have to wonder if that's due to Brienne and all of Jamie's talk about the white cloak and did it have meaning or not. I like that. Maybe she finally decided... Enough is enough. We're not doing that. She's probably like, it's too hard to keep them clean. Why (laughs) white people? We're warriors. This is insane. Come on. So anything else that you want to say about season eight in particular before we move on to our series retrospective? I still am, and I think I always will be, just amazed by the Clatchers throughout all of the seasons. But specifically this one, I feel like our army grew already feel like they left, a lot of them, but uh, <laughs> I was hoping they'd stick with us. But it felt really good. It felt like we had a community. Well, our main people, our Kingsguard, mm-hmm. our small council, they're all still here. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to go too deep into this, but with this amazing journey of Game of Thrones coming to an end, it's hard not to think about the fact that this is how CKC started our TV reviews. Yeah, and it's completely your fault. <laughs> yes, you can blame it entirely on me. What became the Patreon stuff is how we started out with all bonus type mixed material, Mm. reflecting on news topics, fun facts, things that we were watching briefly. Those were original CKC casts, yeah. Yeah, and we sort of kept that material all rolled into Patreon bonus and movie review episodes now. But when we decided to take the jump and actually start covering something in an episodic format every week talking about what was on TV, we started with Game of Thrones and we didn't get in on that until season five. We were still pretty late in the game, despite the fact that we had been watching it and I had read the books. This was something that we were so passionate about, even though we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We knew we wanted to talk about it in some way. You having been just a TV watcher and me having been a book reader, we always thought it gave us a fun perspective. Yeah. And not even on purpose. That's happened with multiple shows that we cover now. And now I'm going to say I do it on purpose, but it's just because I don't want to read. (laughs) (laughs) But it it really 
adds to the dimensions of the podcast because I can come at it from one angle where a lot of our listeners are coming at it and you can come at it from the other angle where the other listeners are coming at. You can have these fun theories and predictions that I really never can knowing where it's going to go. That was an exciting part for me once we left our roadmap and I was able to start predicting right along with you. It was also so cool trying to hold back things from you, like the Red Wedding and seeing your reaction the first time, which is why I'm excited in a minute to get to some of these final little book tidbits that you never got to learn about. To be honest with you, I wasn't that excited to start doing TV reviews. One, because I felt like my memory wasn't good enough. And we've talked about this in Patreon. It's actually helped build my memory. And now I'm way better remembering names and... I mean, podcasts used to be riddled with me, and I had to edit it out, saying, wait, what's that character's name? (laughs) (laughs) Who is this? Yeah, you were particularly nervous. We're going to jump into this with a story like Game of Thrones. I'm never going to be able to keep track of all of it. And I said, there's so many viewers out there feeling the same exact way. That's great to have a representation for it. And even though I've read it, you think I don't forget stuff? This is a mammoth undertaking. We'll go on that journey together. We'll go on the journey with our listeners. And hopefully it feels to me like something we never lost, gathering around the water cooler and doing it together, not us coming on here trying to pretend like... We know better. We know everything about this show. Yeah, and that's why I always make it a point when we start a new season on any show to right away let the Clatchers know that our angle is not that. We will make mistakes. We don't know any better, but we will do some extra research to give you some more fun tidbits. That's the only separator, these hours and hours of Mm -hmm. diving into articles, books, backstories, just to try to find out more stuff going down the rabbit hole for long periods of time. Yeah. And it's because of our Clatchers that we kept doing it and we started doing other shows. Before we knew it, we're podcasting at least once a week, more often than not, twice or three times. And on a couple of mammoth shows. Yeah. Westworld has also not been an easy undertaking for podcasts. Or Mr. Robot. And since we're talking about the Clatchers, the amount of Clatchers who joined our Patreon, I'm just so thankful because that's really our only income that can help us to continue doing this. And those long nights when we're just studying or doing notes or uh, podcasting, having those Patreon members helps us stay sane and say, no, we're doing this for a reason. People do like it. So what I'm saying is we wanted to thank everyone who joined the Patreon. We just dropped our Aladdin podcast. Yeah, this is not an official pitch. We've pitched it all season long. We're just excited about the things that are coming up. It's a lot of changes dropping out of A show like GOT feeling as though what is left to fill that hole? What's coming next? And we went right to something in our wheelhouse, fun and exciting. Let's cover a movie like Aladdin. (laughs) Chosen by the Clatchers, of course, on a poll. But that's what we were hoping would win. Yes. And for the free stuff, it's on to Big Little Lies season two. You know what breaks my heart? The fact that we actually have to work real jobs because we have Clatchers going, are you going to cover Chernobyl? Are you going to cover this new Amazon Prime show? It looks amazing. Just right up your wheelhouse. And we're like, no, we can't. We would love to. Unfortunately, we don't have the time. We would really love to. And the way things work for us, we always have to take it kind of one day at a time and see what we're able to handle. And this will give us a little bit of a breather because we're only covering every other week we'll do two episodes per podcast yeah it's still gonna be a ton of work but you know it's an opportunity we couldn't miss out on we did love season one i wish we had podcasted on it at the time it might feel like that doesn't sound like a typical ckc thing which was kind of the reaction we got to sharp objects as well there is no real pattern that i can isolate to the shows that we cover which is probably to our detriment 
but <laughs> Game of Thrones is so different from Mr. Robot, is so different from Westworld to The Magicians. But it does feel like audiences that enjoy all of these things for whatever reason. And I think the common thread that you can find running through all of that is really interesting characters that you can sink your teeth into and talk about how much more is going on behind there. Amazing writing, amazing production. So even if it's not normally your thing, I think you'll enjoy it. I have not talked to somebody who didn't like the first season of Big Little Lies. I have no idea where they'll be going with this season, but we're along for that ride. However, nothing is going to be like Game of Thrones. We understand that. And that's why we just want to honor all of the fun that we've had over these seasons. And thank you for helping us grow, not just having a bigger army, Jason, as you always say, but improving our podcasting, because I feel like we've come a long way since the early days of Game of Thrones. So in looking back over all these years, one of the things we decided to do is come up with a list of our top five favorite episodes ever in all of Game of Thrones. And we also put our clatchers to task to find out what their top five was. This is hard. Very difficult. In fact, I probably would change my mind a few times. So how about you go first? (laughs) Okay. Well, I went through that when I was developing this list. I almost swapped out every single one of them a million times. And then I said, I'm just going to stick with my first instincts. I'm going to go from number five to number one. So my number five is season four, episode eight, The Mountain and the Viper. We have some tense scenes with Ramsay and Theon entering Moat Kaelin. This is the very beginning of Theon starting to think, do I have to be Reek? forever he made me Theon Greyjoy again for a minute <laughs> to recapture this moat some truly pivotal character work there speaking of that Sir Barristan over in the east receives the letter from the king about the truth of Jorah the starts of the cracks there that he's been lying to her all this time to Danny. Littlefinger is being interrogated by the Lords of the Vale you know is this oh, big yeah. scheme going to work Sansa has to step up and be Littlefinger's second, almost, support his lies. So it's a lot of great things other than just the fight, but of course, Mm. that amazing battle between your man, Oberyn, and the mountain. Oberyn's still my favorite character, by the way. Love that dude. Yeah. He's so cool. Amazing scene. And we didn't get him that much on screen. So this is one of only a few episodes that we even get to enjoy Oberyn. My number four is season one, episode 10, the season one finale, Fire and Blood. You're getting the Stark family's reactions to Ned's execution. So, of course, it was the penultimate where Ned was beheaded. But we always talk about the wrap-ups in episode 10, how amazing they were. Mm -hmm. I could have picked all the episode 9 and 10s from every season (laughs) up until the last one. You just have such suspense, though. Sansa is taken hostage. Arya flees King's Landing in disguise. Rob and Catelyn start to ready, leading their army against the Lannisters. All of this buildup of tension. Things are just going to explode in season two, and we know it. Jon struggles with his divided loyalties, and Danny has to deal with the blood magic that robbed her of her husband, son, and army. And the pivotal moment, of course, she walks out from a fire having birthed her dragons. My number three is the very first episode of season one, Winter is Coming. Maybe a weird choice, but it's the introduction to everything that's going to be important for the rest of the series. So faithfully adapted from the books. Just getting to see that world come to life Mm. for the first time. To see that opening scene of the whites north of the wall. To meet all of the Stark children. And finally, yes, this is what Ned Stark would look like. This is what Robert Baratheon would look (laughs) like. Just amazing. 
You know, to think that at this point, the double Ds have no idea there's going to be a Night King because that wasn't in the books. Mm-hmm. So there was no Night King at all in the scripts, in the, in the brains of them till later on. But there were whites and there was even that symbol right off the bat yeah. of them arranging the bodies. There were the hallmarks of what was to come. Plus, to think that in this episode alone, we had King Robert traveling north to Winterfell for the first time. We have Bran being pushed out of a window all in episode one. Okay, my number two and number one were a toss-up for a very long time. I didn't know what order I was going to put them in. I decided I still don't know. Number two, season five, episode eight, Hard Home. Talk about a moment that's going to stand out in my mind forever. When we finally go north, John tries to convince the wildlings to join him. And we see the Night King's army in its full force. Our first view of that, how crazy this could be. Just a wall of whites piling up on top of each other. John fights a white walker and wins. But they're so horribly defeated. The come at me crow moment between him and the Night King. There's also other amazing things happening in here. In Marine, this is when Jorah and Tyrion are brought before Danny, And you think they're both going to die. Jorah gets exiled, Tyrion becomes her hand. And it's the first time she ever talks about breaking the wheel. Oh, yeah, Using those words. Wow. So it seems pivotal now. But my number one, season four's penultimate episode, number nine, The Watchers on the Wall. The fight between the Night's Watch and the Wildlings. Yes. My favorite battle still. Some of the craziest visuals we've ever seen. There was that one, I don't remember if it actually was or just made to look like a one-shot where we're panning around all of Castle Black, the fights mm-hmm. going on. The incredible things that are happening in this battle. Just giants are coming out of the woods. Yeah, and That was amazing. They have that huge thing that looks like a scythe that they're swinging off the wall to knock the wildlings from being able to climb up. Every single part of that was intense and amazing. Now, of course, there were a million more episodes that I loved. There were some crazy moments, some great battles. It'd be too hard to talk about it all here. So let's go to your list. This podcast is brought to you by Twillery. Your shirts shouldn't wrinkle, itch, or sweat. Twillery makes stocking up your closet easy, affordable, and the perfect fit. Guaranteed. Twillery is built on a century-old family manufacturing business. Their team's technical know-how keeps costs down while maintaining high standards in quality and craftsmanship. They bring performance work shirts to the next level for as low as $55 each when you bundle four or more. The shop in bundles model gives you access to shirts that competitors are selling for $100 plus per shirt. And with free shipping and returns, you can try them on risk-free. Twillery offers an amazing collection, including four of their big categories, performance shirts, safe cotton, the Friday shirt, and the untuckable. They've engineered the world's most innovative non-iron fabric, a proprietary material called safe cotton. Meaning for people like you, Jason, you can throw them on the floor, bunch them up, (laughs) no need to iron the next day. I do not iron. It also has an incredible hand feel. There's no annoying scratchy tags, no need to iron or dry clean ever again. And their hyper-breathable four-way stretch fabric features Coolmax moisture-wicking technology to keep you dry. I haven't received mine yet, but I'm super excited because I ordered the Untuckables. At my job, I'm a web designer, so I don't have to dress up, dress up, but I have to look good and professional so I can wear my button-downs with them untucked. That's where the Untuckables comes into play. But that's not all. They also have socks, ties, and collar stays. 
In fact, they're running a limited time Father's Day special. Enjoy a free set of bottle opener collar stays valid through June 16th. I like that. They combine the fine details of tailored dress shirts with the comfort of your favorite polo. Smart casual just got smarter. For our listeners, you can get $25 off by visiting twillery.com forward slash CKC and using the promo code CKC. That's Twillery, T-W-I-L-L-O-R-Y dot com forward slash CKC and using the promo code CKC for $25 off. Support us by supporting our sponsors. Well, my list is very different and I don't feel confident about that. No, that's good. I feel good. like I'm wrong. That's good. My number one is Battle of the Bastards. Yes. So I'm glad you have it because I would have loved to put it on there. Jon Snow and his army go toe to toe with Ramsay Bolton with Jon personally facing down a mountain charged army. Remember that scene where you kind of see him getting buried? Buried with bodies. That was an amazing scene. Fans also finally got to see Ramsay get his just. Mm. What about when John gets to beat him with his own two hands? He almost kills him before Sansa tells him to stop. Fed to his own house. Mm-hmm. It also featured a memorable scene in which Daenerys kills the rulers of other slave cities and burns their fleets with their drag- with yeah, her dragons. That yeah, that was intense. I mean, come on. My number two, The Door. Also glad you have that one on there. Season six, episode five, Hold the Door. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I have to say. See, this is great. It was my indecision of, should some of these go on there? And now you get them. My number three is Hard Home, which you already described right on board with you. That was such an epic scene or episode. I think either that or Watchers on the Wall or both would be on many people's lists. My number four, The Spoils of War. Season seven, episode four. Arya returning to Winterfell. Arya and Brienne spar. That was a cool scene. That's where we see for the first time that she can drop the knife. Yeah. And go to the other hand. And Danny burns the Lannister forces in the loot train the battle. The loot train battle. So I had to put that in because that was one of the first times we got to see the dragons kick some ass. And didn't have to feel bad about it. Exactly. And lastly, the reigns of Castamere. The red wedding. Red wedding. I'm so glad you did all of these. Season three, episode nine. Now, um, I just did something that was totally wrong to do in a podcast. If you went five, four, three, two, one, I should have. But to be honest with you, I only had a few numbers decided. And the only way for me to decide now was to go from the top down. So that's why I went the opposite way. I think many people listening would probably say the two big things that are missing from both of our lists are the Battle of Blackwater and the episode where Cersei blows up King's Landing. Okay. Well, I do have a nod to list. Okay. I give a nod to The Children, season four, episode 10. So close to making it onto my list. So much happened in that episode. Season four finale. Daenerys heartbreakingly chained two of her dragons rather than let them kill innocent people. As well as Stannis Baratheon break Mance Raider's wildling army. Bran Stark also finally meets the three-eyed raven. And Brienne has a knockdown drag out with the Hound. Remember that fight? It's the follow-up to my Watchers on the Wall penultimate and we can't forget i mean this is all in one episode Mm -hmm. maybe this should have been up there we got Tyrion. he kills shay and his father on the toilet i mean so much happened that episode i almost replaced the mountain and the viper with that one okay but i thought man not having Oberyn in there somewhere is just a crying shame (laughs) three more nods the lion and the rose okay season four episode two it's when joffrey gets poisoned other things happen too but that's the memorable <laughs> That's part. It. Yeah. The Climb, season three, episode six. Yes, I looked at that as well. John, Egret, Tormund, and the Wildling team climb the wall. The epic Littlefinger quote, chaos is, is a, a ladder. ladder. <laughs> and fire and blood. That's when Danny's dragons are born, which 
I had Fire Emblem. Yes. Yep. So that's my nod to. And all of your nod twos were my close, do I switch any of these? I didn't pick some of the big battle ones, Battle of the Bastards, Blackwater, because I assumed they were going to be on your list. And I already had the Watchers. So I thought, I can't pick all the battle things. Those are cool scenes, but what else is happening in the episode? What other character work? Like you said, the children had just amazing things happening in every single location. And most of your episode 10s were like that. Mm -hmm. Nine had the action, the big deaths, the moments we remember. But episode 10s had a lot going on. Something to note that none of these on my list, nor yours, is season eight. I don't have any seven or eight. Okay. Surprisingly, I had two from season one. Oh, I had Spoils of War. Two from season one, no surprise. Two from season four. And people often say seasons one through four were solidly the best. And one through six were really, really good. Mm -hmm. You know, like up to four is perfection. Five Five and six, some complaints, but still really good. Seven and eight, a very different kind of show. I myself have to say I still enjoyed season seven. Me too. I saw all the problems. I saw the cracks forming. I saw the writing on the wall. But I thought if they just have to rush to get to where they're going, Mm -hmm. I can excuse these problems because I'm still enjoying a lot. The issue is that it wasn't wrapped up to my opinion satisfactorily in eight. wasn't worth the rush in seven. But in hindsight, I still like seven. Me too. So let's see what our Clatchers said. Lewis says, the episodes that automatically come to mind are The Door, number two, The Trial for Tyrion, Peter Dinklage, that is all I need to say, (laughs) number three, Hard Home, Night King Kicking Ass, number four, No One, A Girl is Arya Stark of Winterfell, and I'm Going Home. Oh yeah, that was a good one. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that one. And number five, The Winds of Winter, Boom. So, so far, The Door and Hard Home, making multiple lists. Melly says, number one, The Queen's Justice. That was a great episode. Yes. Lady Olena's death, but also where she confesses to orchestrating Joffrey's murder. Um, that's an epic scene. I mean, she was amazing. I would pick that as a, as a scene winner. Oh, I have that. Instead of, yeah, instead of an episode winner. Number two, The Lion and the Rose. Here you go, Jason. Number three, The Dragon and the Wolf, when Littlefinger dies. Number four, Beyond the Wall, when Danny looses a dragon. Oh. And number five, Fire and Blood when the dragons are born. That was on my list, Yes. Too. Everyone likes Fire my and Blood. List. She says, also, looking back at past seasons reminded me of how much I loved Danny. She was powerful, lovable, and had magic within her. It's sad the show ended with her being a mad queen when she had been so much more throughout the series. But that's what we can remember now. That's the good thing about the series that's retrospective. Right. <laughs> Kirk writing, why all the whining? This is easy. Season three, episode five, Kiss by Fire. After the cave scene when Ygritte asked John... Mm-hmm. The thing you did with your mouth? Is that what lords do with their ladies in the south? Kirk. Fancy lords. You're so dirty. <laughs> was a great episode, though. Brian S. says, number one, Battle of the Bastards. Number two, the one where Littlefinger dies. Melly just mentioned that. Number three, the one where Ramsay dies. Four, where Joffrey dies. And five, where Tywin dies. So the just do for all of our villains. Yeah. That's definitely Brian's personality, for sure. And also, I like the way he titled it, and this probably wasn't on purpose, but he titled it just like the names of episodes in Friends. Oh, really? Yeah. It's always <laughs> the one with... Oh, that's funny. the one when. Claudio wrote, okay, this is entirely too difficult. I like his list. But here goes. Number one, Hard Home. Number two, Reigns of Castamere. Number three, The Door. Number four, Winds of Winter. And number five, Baelor. That's a good list. And Hard Home just becoming the all out. I think so, yeah. It's going to be on everyone's. 
Becky says, number one, the winds of winter. Number two, the door. Number three, Baylor. Number four, Mother's Mercy. And number five, the lion and the rose. Top two for certain. Bottom three were much harder. Nearly all episodes deserve a spot. It's a difficult one. But these are consistent feedback with just a few kind of mixed around. Yeah. Jenna wrote, this is going to be hard. And then I don't think we got a list from her. So she probably was like, F this. I can't do it. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> Sherry Ava said, number one, season one, episode 10, Fire and Blood. Number two, season three, episode nine, The Reigns of Castamere. Number three, season six, episode five, The Door. Number four, season four, episode eight, The Mountain and the Viper. Yeah. Number five, season five, episode 10, Mother's Mercy. Oh. You know what I love about her list? They're all from different seasons. And you don't have all penultimates. So it's a real mixture. I think that's a great one. I like that Tom has similar for one through four. Winds of Winter, Reigns of Castamere, Lion in the Rose, Baylor, but also does include one from this season. His number five is A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Oh, nice. Which, if you were to pick one from this season, surely would be my favorite as well, episode two. Daniel wrote, number one, The Reigns of Castamere. Number two, Baylor. Number three, The Mountain and the Viper. Number four, The Battle of the Bastards. And number five, The Dragon and the Wolf. Oh, those are all good too. It's very, very similar. Holly has a different kind of list, but I like this as well. Number one, The North Remembers. That was season two, episode one. Number two, The Lion and the Rose. Three, The Winds of Winter. Four, The Children, which we both talked about putting it on there. And number five, The Long Night. The Long Night, there we go. Beautiful, okay. I don't feel as bad now. We got some season eight ones. And Hillary, here you go. Kirk also included as her number three, Kissed by Fire. Mara actually says season eight had most of my favorite episodes, visually and cinematically speaking, but none come close to favorites plot wise. That's what makes it so hard. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Wholeheartedly. Agree. Are you looking at characters, visual spectacle? It's so hard to put all of that into one list. Yeah. It would be great to do the battle episodes ranked. The visually stunning episodes ranked. <laughs> yeah. The character episodes, you know? And finally, Paul says, I'm too worn out to think about five, so I'll just go Battle of the Bastards. That really wow. solidifies, I think, there's a lot of commonality Absolutely. about the best episodes of Game of Thrones. But thank you so much, Clatchers, for helping us out with this one. I have some favorite scenes to make myself feel better when I was so back and forth about uh, episodes. Are any of them not from episodes we talked about? Yes. Cool. Arya destroying House Frey. Frey Pie. A golden crown when the Dothraki crowned oh, Viserys. yes. Viserys. Winning moment. Yeah. Uh, this one was on yours. Ned execution. When the dragons hatch, the, that was on there. Mm-hmm. When Daenerys kills Karznis, the first time we hear Dracarys. Yes, that was a good moment too. Red Wedding. Egret's death. Oh, which episode was that? Oh, I don't remember. Was that Watchers on the Wall, my battle one? Oh, it might have been. I think because it was during the battle, right, that she died? My brain hurts. Yeah. This was one of the uh, episodes I said, but specifically when Arya leaves the Hound, that scene when she bounces, that was badass. That was a reflection of how she was going to become. Or closing out the season with Arya aboard the ship, Mm -hmm. sailing east. That was also a beautiful moment. I have to say this because it wasn't on my list and it was breaking my heart, but it was on your list. Mountain and the Viper fight, just because, you know. You got to make a nod. John's death. Yeah. Heartbreaking I, I as it was. I can't stand that. I was so mad. And we ended the season on that. For the watch. Tom and suicide. That came out of nowhere when he just jumped out. I was like, one holy of, one shit. One of the most shocking moments. Yeah. Truly on Game of Thrones. 
and and very often not recognized. You know, we talk about things like the Red Wedding. I remember Renly's death mm. via the Shadow Baby, feeling yes. equally. Sh- what just happened? <laughs> Renly, who seemed like a strong contender to be king, was just killed by shadow magic. What kind of a show is this? <laughs> when the wall falls from the ice dragon, mm. epic scene, mm. and Lady Olenna's death. Had to put that in there. Also, for all the qualms we have with the whole catch a white problem from yeah. season seven, when they're actually in the middle waiting it out on that block of ice, and then the whites start to attack. Yeah. The fight oh. with them, Danny coming in on the dragon to save them. Just some visually epic and suspenseful plot stuff happening. Was that Hard Home? No. Oh. Season seven. Ah. Yeah, that's what I mean. Season seven. It had its moments. It had a ton of problems, but it had some incredible stuff to watch as well. Okay, here is your warning that we were about to go into some of the topics we wanted to cover more fully, a lot of stuff from the books. We're going to start out more mild with the visions Danny got in the House of the Undying, how many of those have come true. We've talked about a lot of that already, but then we're going to move into increasingly more spoilery book type stuff. So if you're afraid of that, it's starting right now. And don't forget, you can look at the timestamp because we have other things in the podcast. So don't just stop listening. There's other fun stuff coming. But look in our episode description. You'll see the timestamp and you can fast forward to that. So we're starting out only mildly spoilery. First, Danny got a couple of visions before the really big ones. As she's entering the House of the Undying, she sees a feast of slaughtered corpses holding cups, spoons, and food with a dead man that has a wolf's head sitting on a throne wearing an iron crown. Clear, an amazing foreshadowing to the Red Wedding, though we had no idea. So that was only in the books? That sequence of vision, I think. Okay. Also, only in the books, Danny saw her childhood home with the Red Door in Bravos that she talked about a lot. We saw a throne room with dragon skulls on the wall where a king resembling Ares sat on a barbed throne and appeared to give the order to burn the Red Keep during the sack of King's Landing. I don't know if we got that in a vision in the House of the Undying, but we did see flashbacks of that later through Bran's eyes. That's right. Burn them all! We saw a room where a silver-haired man, looking back we know was Rhaegar, naming his son Aegon, saying, this is the prince that was promised. So, the big moment. That's what one of our clatchers actually just said, right? Yes, his will be the Song of Ice and Fire. But then upon reaching the chamber, we get her official visions. First, the warlocks tell her, Mother of dragons and child of three, three fires must you light, one for life and one for death and one to love. Three mounts must you ride, one to bed and one to dread and one to love. Three treasons will you know, once for blood and once for gold and once for love. That's beautiful. Yes, and all coming to pass. I think we spoke about as we went through all of the seasons. You know, the fires for life, she births her dragons. Danny never found her true love, though, because she never met me. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, all of these for love ones are pretty much just straight off the bat for John. A fire for death is questionable because we had several. I mean, at the time, it really seemed like burning the slave masters. Mm-hmm. But since then, we've had quite a few more. <laughs> it's probably the last war. Yeah. Treason's also a little questionable because she's been betrayed multiple times. So you could say a couple of them were for blood. Was it Miri Mazdor with the blood magic that mm. she wound up sacrificing her child? Was Jorah's betrayal for wanting to go back home for blood, for gold, for love? There's a lot of tricky stuff in there, but for sure all of these have come true in some fashion. But then we move on to the visions. You see Viserys, gruesome death, 
You see a tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair beneath a banner of a fiery stallion with a burning city in the background, which we all believe was a glimpse at what Rago's future, her unborn child, would have been should he lived. The big speech that Cal Drogo gave that he was going to promise her all of these things and their child would be the stallion who mounts the world, who goes across the sea and takes back her home. It was kind of the follow-up the speech that she gave here in season eight to the Unsullied, the scary one about everything Mm -hmm. they've done for her. And we saw a dying prince, Rhaegar, muttering a woman's name with his last breath, rubies flying from his chest. That was the battle at the Ruby Ford where he died at the hands of Robert Baratheon. We saw a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow, raising a red sword in his hand, most likely Stannis Baratheon, back when Melisandre thought he was going to be the (laughs) prince who was promised. We saw a cloth dragon swaying on poles amidst a cheering crowd. Maybe a nod to the fake Aegon, Fagon, Young Griff, a character that you didn't get in the show, and I'm not going to go into it here because it's way too much to try to describe his background, but supposedly another heir, another Targaryen that would come up to challenge Danny. Oh, wow. But book readers tend to believe he wasn't the real Aegon. He was a fake Aegon, a fake Targaryen. But he was claiming to be the first Aegon that came before John, that we thought was killed in the sack of King's Landing, one of Elia Martell's kids. You know, you killed my children. Yes. Oberyn kept saying that. Mm-hmm. The oldest child, a boy, was also named Aegon, just to make things really confusing. <sighs> but thus, he would have had a better claim than either John or Danny to the throne. Okay. So that was a big deal. Just again, cementing why I couldn't read these books. <laughs> The next, a great stone beast takes wing from a smoking tower, breathing shadows. Then a corpse standing at the prow of a ship with bright eyes and gray smiling lips. There was some debate over whether that was Euron Greyjoy or actually the Night King. So these are all visions. Yeah. Wow. And finally, a blue flower growing from a chink in a wall of ice, filling the air with sweetness. And that was the big nod to Jon's true parentage. Being the child of Lyanna, not Ned Stark. Okay, moving on to our sore spot, that of the dire wolves. <laughs> I thought I would bring you some good extra tidbits, perhaps. Of course, we also lose many of the dire wolves in the books, and it does pretty much come down to Ghost and Nymeria, but Nymeria has some more backstory that we don't get in the show. In A Storm of Swords, through her warg bond with Nymeria, and yes, we do see a lot more active warging on the part of both Bran and Arya. So wait, Arya in the books can warg? Into Nymeria. Holy shit. Her her wolf. I think you told me this and I totally forgot. Most of the Stark kids can, actually. Oh, wow. But the biggest ones are Arya, kind of, but Bran does it all the time and to great extent with Summer. I remember discussing that where it was almost unhealthy. Yeah, that they kept telling him he couldn't live his whole life like that. He was a real boy. He had to come back and actually eat something. Okay, so here's the big spoiler, again, that's coming up. During one of these times when Arya wargs into Nymeria, she finds her mother, Catelyn Stark's body, in a river after the Red Wedding. This is how she knows she's dead. Nymeria drags her to the shore and tries to wake her up, but realizing she's dead, flees when she sees men approaching. After that, when in Braavos, Arya has wolf dreams at night. So not quite warging, but she can see visions of what's happening. And she's leading a great wolf pack in the forest. Then after that, we start to hear increasing reports of this wolf pack. Hundreds of wolves that are prowling the trident, led by a she-wolf of monstrous size, who Jamie thinks is Nymeria. 
There was a little nod to that in the show last season where Arya stumbled upon Nymeria and she had a wolf pack, but not hundreds of wolves. Holy shit. And pretty well known. Like people are, it's being reported all over the place. Wow. And Nymeria is the head of them. That's awesome. So in my brain, that's what's going on. She's got a hundred something dire wolves. And you know who's going to stumble upon her this time? John. Oh, with ghost. Yep. Because they're all up north. (laughs) How cool would that be? But that takes me to the bigger thing. And I know we have kind of talked about this in the past. It's one of the huge storylines that did not make it into the show. I'm speaking of Lady Stoneheart. If you go back to After the Red Wedding, this is the time where Beric is still traveling with Thoros, the Red Priest who we lost in the show when we went north of the Wall. Yes. He died in that scene. They're telling Brienne they found Catelyn by the river three days dead, her throat slashed from ear to ear. Harwin begged Thoros to give her the kiss of life, but he said it had been too long, so he wouldn't do it. However... Beric would. He put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. So he gave up his last and final death in the books so that he could bring Catelyn back to life. The priest, Thoros, was saying, don't do this. It's been too long. This is not a good idea. I'm not going to bring her back. But Beric said, I've lived enough life. I will. You know, there was rumors on the internets about this as far as the show is concerned. Even so much where there's a screenshot of when... Arya and Brienne are, are um, sparring up north. So last season, mm-hmm. there's a woman in the background that walks by and everyone thought that's... With her cloak up? Yeah. I remember that. There was a couple of thoughts that we might see it at some point. That would have been awesome if during the long night, that's when we see her. Oh my God, that would have been cool. Well, I have to say she was horror movie scary. Everything Uh-oh. Thoros was afraid of. Oh, so she was bad. <laughs> Never mind. Quote. Well, so to have her come out In the long night, maybe it would make sense. Quote, her cloak and collar hid the gash the blade had made on her throat. But her face was even worse than he remembered. The flesh had gone pudding soft in the water and turned the color of curdled milk. Half of her hair was gone and the rest had turned white and brittle as a crone's. Beneath her ravaged scalp, her face was shredded and the blood was black where she had raked herself with her nails. So at the Red Wedding, when she saw Rob die, she had literally just started... Like tearing at her own face. But her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him and they hated. Death had changed Catelyn. She was consumed with a desire for revenge on anyone she thought betrayed her and Rob. She assumed command of Beric's outlaw band. So the Brotherhood Without Banners that we did get to see in the show. She overtook them and made them a force that would follow her just to get vengeance. Because Beric died giving his last life, right? Correct. Okay. So they went around mercilessly executing anyone associated with the Freys, the Boltons, the Lannisters, even if they had nothing to do with the Red Wedding, even if they were little boys. She was just having anyone they came across remotely related to them killed. Because her throat was cut, to speak, she had to cover the wound. And she was super hard to understand. So she had somebody traveling with them to translate most of what she said. The last time we saw her, the band came upon Brienne's small party. That was the time where Brienne was searching for Sansa mm-hmm. because she had made the promise to Jamie that the two of them had agreed to protect Catelyn Stark's children. She was going around looking. Has anybody seen a red-haired girl? Catelyn came upon them, and Brienne tried to insist she was doing this because they were both trying to keep their oath. No, really, Jamie is good now. Mm-hmm. And Lady Stoneheart's like, yeah, my ass, he's good. Jamie's an evil man and you're carrying his blade 
Oath Keeper, which means you're bad too. She said Brienne had turned traitor, and she insisted the only way she could prove it was for Brienne to kill Jamie. but Brienne said she wouldn't do it. They were just about to execute her when Brienne shouted something out. One word. We don't know what it was, and we don't know what happened. That's where we leave off in the books. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So the books are really different. That's the last. Some stories come closer, like we can see where it's going, but others like this? No idea. uh, No clue. And he's left people hanging for how many years now? This is why people are so (laughs) mad. Okay, moving along, another big one was Howland Reed. You don't see much of him in the show. We get a lot with his kids, Mira and Jojen, although from the time that we had the door and then Mira getting Bran safely back to the north, we kind of just drop the reeds, right? And we never really talk about Howland, who was a big deal. He was a small Cranigman in the books, described as being brave, strong, and smart. And at a younger age, seeking more knowledge, he secretly made his way to the Isle of Faces that we just talked about last episode, how I wish I had gotten to see that. He was in search of the green men. He stayed there all winter. We don't really know what he found, but we assume he learned a lot. After that, he went to the tourney at Harrenhal. He's very famous in the books. He was attacked by three squires and saved by Lyanna Stark. Thus, the Starks befriended him, and they were going to help him seek vengeance. But before they could do so, on the second day of the tournament, a short mystery knight showed up for the jousting. Jousting. The Knight of the Laughing Tree and defeated the three knights of those squires that had attacked Howland. Okay. And thus, even though the identity was never revealed, book readers believe that was Lyanna Stark, who had actually put on a knight's armor and gone and jousted and won against these three men Oh wow! to seek justice for her new friend, Howland Reed. After that, Howland joined Robert's Rebellion, and he accompanied Ned Stark south on his journey to the Red Mountains, in search of what they thought was an imprisoned Lyanna, you know, being held in the Tower of Joy. Everyone thought she'd been abducted and was being held there against her will. Howland went with Ned. In fact, the two of them were the only survivors from the combat at the Tower of Joy, making Howland the only other person in the world that knew about John's true parentage. Because when they left there, Ned told him what Lyanna had said to him who this kid was now that they were bringing back north, what he was going to say about it. So for a long time, we thought that Howland would come back into this story because, yeah, he's the only other person that knows the truth. So the book has even more characters. That's what you're saying. This well, is all I'm getting from all you this. Know, you know Howland, right? I mean, you've briefly met him. You know his kids. Okay, yeah. They show up at a critical time to help Bran, and you're kind of like, wow, these reeds are really devoted to the Starks. That's I mean, right. where does all of this come from? And you hear a little bit about them saying that their fathers were really close. You knew that Howland was at the Tower of Joy, but the really big kicker here, and I don't know why you don't say these final lines, is Howland's the only other one that knows about John. That's crazy. How can we not hear about that? How does Howland die in the show? He doesn't. We just never see him again. Okay. We never see his kids again. You also briefly were bringing up the fact of having no real Night King in the books, like we do on the show. The White Walkers were similar, although they called them the Others. According to legend, the Others came from the lands of Always Winter about 8,000 years ago. Same as we get here, they brought with them the cold that lasted a generation, the Long Night. They resurrected dead men and animals to serve them. The big difference here, though, we talk about the Night's King from the book, who was the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. So Night's ownership. Correct. Not Night King. Mm-hmm. He was said to have married a woman with pale skin and blue eyes who was reportedly a sorceress. 
He brought her to the Night Fort, his castle on the Night's Watch, where he proclaimed himself king and her his queen. Okay. He just said, I'm going to be king now, not just Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. She's my queen, even though she's this weirdo sorceress. And we're going to rule here at the Night Fort. And he bound his sworn brothers of the Watch to his will. And in fact, that worked for 13 years that he reigned until he was defeated by Brandon the Breaker. King of Winter. So there have been a lot of famous brands. You had Brandon the Builder, who built the wall. Bran the Breaker was Lord of Winterfell at the time when the Night's King ruled. And you also had Joramin, who was the king beyond the wall, the Mance Raider of the time. The two of them teamed up in order to take down the Night's King. After they brought him down, they discovered he had been sacrificing babies to the others. This was all so horrible that all records of him were destroyed and even his name was forbidden and forgotten. No one was allowed to talk about this ever again. And of course, the wall was built to protect the realms from these threats, particularly the others. We've talked about this a lot. You know, is George going to have an actual sort of person like the Night King? Mm -hmm. Was this a representation to show you what it would be like? the tales about the past that often happens? Or will it just be this kind of ruling group of white walkers that we saw who were performing those rituals? Mm -hmm. I could also see it going that way. Everything else, though, about them is essentially the same. What happens with reanimating the dead, the way the whites look, the way the others look with these bright eyes. They're superior swordsmen. They have thin crystal swords that are extremely sharp that they use in a fight. It's the same thing about the dragon glass and the fire, all of that. And of course, we have discussed in the past how the long night leads into the prophecy of the prince who is promised, the tales about Azor Ahai who came and defeated the first long night and how people thought he would be reincarnated, brought back the prince who is promised to defeat the long night this time around. So you can hear our old episodes for that information. Finally, just to say, maybe we'll cover it in future episodes. There is so much in the topic of gods, the religions of Westeros, the magic, all of those types of fantasy elements that we saw some of, but we didn't see a lot. We spoke of the Isle of Faces, the Long Night, the Drowned God, which we didn't talk an awful lot about, the Lord of Light that you always wanted to know more about. We had mentioned in an episode a long time ago how there were two infamous horns in the book. The Horn of Joramin, the guy we were just talking about, King Beyond the Wall, who helped bring down the Night's King, supposedly had a horn that the wildlings thought could bring down the wall. Oh, wow. And for a long time we <laughs> wondered, is this how the wall is going to come down? I remember you talking about that. You yeah. know, nobody even knew if that was true or not. Much like this second horn, we don't really know. We hear a lot more about it, though. This one is called Dragonbinder. It's a horn that's six feet long. It actually came from an enormous dragon, one of their horns. It has a black gleam and is banded with red gold and Valyrian steel. The bands themselves are covered with strange Valyrian glyphs. And when the horn sounds, the glyphs glow white hot. Whoa, magical. Euron in the books talks about having found it among the smoking ruins of Valyria. And the horn's noise sounds like the screaming of a thousand souls. Oh. When people hear it, they say it felt as if their very bones were aflame, searing their flesh from within. The man who actually blows the horn for Euron at the king's moot when they're gathered and he's trying to put in his bid to be the next king, this is like his big play. He has his man blow the horn. He collapses with blisters on his lips. It looks like he's going to be lit on fire. His tattooed chest is bleeding. He, in fact, dies shortly thereafter, and the maester that examines him sees his lungs were charred black with soot on the inside. So he was burned from the inside out based off of blowing this horn. Wow. 
Makoro, the guy who serves Euron, says that whoever blows the horn will die, but any dragons that hear will obey the horn's master. And he interprets the glyphs as saying, I am Dragonbinder. No mortal man shall sound me and live. Blood for fire, fire for blood. So in the books, people thought this is how Euron's going to defeat Danny. By blowing this horn, he's somehow going to be able to control dragons or bring dragons down or we don't know what. But then eventually die. No, because he would have somebody else blow it. So how would the dragons know that it's not the guy blowing the horn, it's the guy next to him? It hasn't been <laughs> fully fleshed out. This is what Euron's trying to figure out in the books, but he's a much more intimidating, scary type man. He's got control of magic and warlocks and things like the dragon binder. He's not just some crazy loon who's like, I'm going to go marry Cersei and we're going to take down some dragons. <laughs> I hated Euron in the show. You would be slightly more terrified of him. In this book version. Wow, that's clever. I mean, there's so much in the books that and to think I don't know. we're still missing two whole books. That's everything up until now. I can't wait, hopefully, to eventually read those and see where it goes. So we could go on forever. That's all we're gonna talk about for book plots here. I'm worried now if I start reading those books, there's gonna be characters I'm gonna be like, Who's this? And why don't I know? Uh, well I'll have you. I'll to tell, tell you. Me. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. Okay, Jason, we're gonna move on to Clatcher's comments. There was a lot of write-ins about feelings on the season finale, the final episode. Yeah, and unfortunately, they came in right after we finished recording. Yeah, kind of wrap of thoughts that, you know, we've sort of gone over the general feelings that we have, the consensus of the good and the bad. But we do want to thank everybody that wrote in for that. We read all of it. There were some that I wanted to come back to because they were things we hadn't already talked about, such as Mark said, Bran is the Star Wars version of the Jar Jar Binks theory. Basically, Jar Jar is a Sith Lord. Here, Bran knows the future, so he played out the future where he becomes a king. He could have made it a happy ending, but decided not to tell anyone he is an evil genius. Now, this is actually a theory that has been going around a lot, that Bran saw from the very beginning <laughs> he was going to be king. There were several ways this future could have played out, but he let certain things come to pass so that he could be the king. I'm not saying that's a wrong interpretation. I think it kind of makes sense. That's why I say I don't know if I fully trust him. A lot of people felt that way. And I don't think that the show gives you a heck of a lot one way or the other. You could kind of take that as you will. I interpreted it a little differently from the time of Hodor's death. Before that, we saw Bran going back in and actually trying to alter things from the past, trying to look at everything he could and get all the information. When he finally realized how dangerous that was, trying to do something to affect things, and that actually the outcome was going to be the same regardless. It had all been determined. I think that scared the hell out of him from making any moves. So yes, he could see these things, but he was kind of at the mercy of just letting them unfold. This is like all people in fantasy stories who have gotten a prophecy and then tried to change it, and all they did was make it come true. I mean, look at Cersei, for crying out loud. She made all of her prophecies from Maggie the Frog come true. I think he knew at that point, yes, you have this great responsibility as the Three-Eyed Raven, but you don't really have a ton of power. There's not a lot you can do with that information. And we discussed, even as far as sharing it, how is some of that stuff going to help people? You're going to tell John you're going to wind up having to kill Danny, but it's all good because it's going to remove the threat to the Seven Kingdoms. You can't say that. One of the things that really upset me is the fact that he didn't do much, say much, explain much. But one could argue that if what he are did, you say? he also, he could, by mistake, alter it by saying something. Which is exactly what he's trying not to do. So yeah. he had to keep his remarks really vague and cryptic. And that made us frustrated with him because 
they didn't show us inside a brand experience. Mm-hmm. That's the issue here. We didn't get to see that inside look like yeah. we did in earlier seasons of how difficult this was. Yeah, it would have been nice to, to have his angle so that we at least understood. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been nice. And it was a really off way that they wrote the comment when he was accepting being king and he said why do you think i've come all this way (laughs) yeah it sounded a little smarmy like yeah i knew i was gonna be king to me it was more like i never wanted this i'm accepting this responsibility this is just what i have to do the same way you Tyrion, don't really want to be hand of the king we both have to serve we don't have a choice i still want to know what the hell they talked about the night before the long night at the fire him and Tyrion. Mm mm-hmm yeah, you have to assume that influences this conversation they're having here. Tyrion standing up and saying Bran has the best story because you could yes. argue plenty of other characters in this circle have a better story than him. But yeah, Tyrion, it's like Ar- Bran has the best story. You know what Arya just went through? <laughs> right, exactly. But Tyrion, having seen kind of the inner workings of that, remember how well he knows Jon, too. He sees things about this that other people haven't gotten to, and I wish we had been able to see that. I think all of this Bran stuff would make a lot more sense. Somebody else wrote in, Ram. He said, after Bran was chosen king, I couldn't shake the uncomfortable feeling that somehow the Night King had taken over the Iron Throne through Bran. The way Bran eerily said, why do you think I came all this way? So taking it in another interpretation, combined with the convenient way the Night King was killed while standing in front of Bran in Winterfell, made me think somehow the Night King had merged with Bran prior to his death at the hands of Arya. Pretty out there, but the ramifications are Bran is in fact the Night King now and also the King of Westeros. I like that. It's very interesting. It adds a level of intrigue. You could extrapolate from that and say that the Night King was almost controlling him already because, Mm -hmm. because of that scene when he grabs his arm. Yeah. And kind of like burns his arm a little bit or something. Exactly. And then Bran's going to look for him all throughout the long night. And you're like, what is he doing? Maybe the Night King is controlling him all those times to figure it out. I mean, I don't know if I think that it's true, but I love thinking about this other take on it. It's fun, for sure. And there were so many Bran is going to be the Night King theories floating around before this season. That's a way you could still have that wrap up. How about this theory from Chris Matheson? He's half joking, but... I think it's so funny that I have to read it anyway. He wrote a really long email, has tons of great stuff in it. He's probably like, this is what you're going to read on the wall of this. <laughs> but he says, I'm super happy to have an end of Game of Thrones. As it stands, it's still better than George's because George didn't finish it. But I feel we got the tamest and safest version of what they considered to be the end of his story. In a way, I'm fine with that. If they didn't know what the hell they were going to do, then the fairy tale ending works until George finishes his story. Quick meta theory. George begins writing Game of Thrones. Creates character Sam, on paper, who is George in real life. Game of Thrones show begins, and paper Sam becomes physical Sam. Then, George's soul leaves his physical body to enter that of physical Sam. Physical Sam must now live through the events of Game of Thrones, and at the end of the show, before George will get his soul back from physical Sam, then George can finish the end of A Song of Ice and Fire (laughs) with the knowledge he gained from physical Sam. Here's hoping that's not true, and the last two books aren't laughably short. That's hilarious. Hold on. Hashtag stick them with the disappointy end. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I just, it was so hysterical, I had to read that to you. 
We got an email that I said I would come back to from Alex about Aria being Lightbringer. So when we said there was no real wrap-up to the prince who was promised prophecy and the Lightbringer being forged, she said there's another way you can look at this because prophecies are always so tricksy. They never mean exactly what they're supposed to mean. She said John could still be Azora High. He was reborn by salt and smoke. That was the whole first line of the prophecy about Azora High, he shall be reborn of salt and smoke. The two people who were present when he came back to life were Davos and Melisandre. Davos, salt from the sea, and Melisandre, smoke. He forged Lightbringer by giving Arya needle. Arya went through three phases of her training, much like we see Azora High having to go through these different things in order to bring Lightbringer to pass. So first she trained with Sirio to learn water dancing, then she trained with the Hound, and then the Faceless Men. She had to give up her entire identity and everything she loved, much like Azor Ahai had to give up his love of Nissa Nissa to form this blade. She gave up who is Arya Stark, who is everything, to learn the skills that she would need to eventually take down the Night King, happening in the order of the Lightbringer prophecy. So it's not literal, but it's a take on it, if you wanted to look at it that way. And John's kind of fostering of her makes him essential in bringing that prophecy to pass. Adrian wrote in with this great thing I hadn't thought of, saying, I wonder your thoughts on Danny's idea of breaking the wheel. She didn't end up breaking any wheel per se, but they did elect Bran as the head of a council, if you will. So Bran the Broken on the throne of the wheel. Breaking the wheel, Bran oh, the yes, Broken. So yeah. like as a clever kind of wordplay to this coming to pass. I like that. And, you know, yes, we still have a little bit of the old, there's a king ruling, there's a small council, but it was a step towards having more say from the people, which we had assumed. You can't go right from this, the way we're yes. living, to a democracy. Sam brings that up and the whole group laughs at him because that's insane. <laughs> there have to be baby steps. So this is the first baby step to trying to break things and make it different. And perhaps that's why they called him Bran the Broken, even though that's still a terrible name <laughs> for a king. It would make sense in this context. And finally, Debbie wrote in to talk about our last watch documentary wrap-up. Oh, someone listened? <laughs> yes, yeah, saying she had a whole new appreciation for the superhuman effort put in by the people in the shadows. Ooh, the people in the shadows. Yeah. I like that. She was saying, thank you so much to the countless others who worked tirelessly to provide the fans with all of this entertainment that we got for all these years. After watching that amazing two-hour glimpse behind the scenes, there is no way I could not get behind GOT as the absolute miracle which these people and countless others brought into my house for nearly 10 years. Amen. So that's true, and that's what we got out of this as well. I also saw this amazing post today on geek.com. After the Game of Thrones series finale aired, fans have donated more than $125,000 to charities to thank the series' beloved cast, including Amelia Clark and Kit Harrington. A fundraising campaign was created, one for Amelia Clark, that has raised more than $101,000 for her charity, Same You. I've seen Amelia Clark talk about it on her Instagram. Yeah, that's the one that's trying to help fund recovery for people who've had a brain injury. It's in association with the Stroke Association. Yeah. And she did this really awesome video as a thank you because the charity donation stemmed from the Free Folk Reddit community, which has been really active. They're the ones that started the whole idea of a petition to okay. rewrite oh, season no. eight. But <clears throat> despite all of that, they were still saying how amazing the actors are and all this other stuff. So they started this campaign to raise money. 
for this Brain Injury Rehabilitation Foundation. And she went on and did a thank you video to them. It's really sweet. You can go check it out. But also, there was another campaign made for Kit Harrington's charity that generated more than $25,000 for MenCamp. He's actually an ambassador for that charity. That's a UK charity for people with learning disabilities to support them and their families and caregivers. Oh, very cool. So it was nice to see just people rallying and doing good again, being kind to each other. It was a great article to read. And we are starting a charity. It's called Broke Podcasters Charity, (laughs) which is kind of like a misnomer because it's only us that it would go to, not all podcasters. (laughs) This broke podcast. (laughs) We also have a few voicemails. We haven't heard them, so I'm curious to see what they say. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew this wasn't the last time that... John would see ghosts. I knew... Uh, oh, it's uh, Matt from uh, Pecatonica. Uh, oh, my gosh. I can't even process all of the things that happened that episode. Bran on the throne. Oh, man. So, I guess what I'm curious about with you guys is where do you think it's going to diverge biggest from the books? Like, if and when he ever finishes them. Do you think that Bran on the throne is kind of Martin's endgame, too? Uh I'm still thinking about it. I'll have to uh, let my brain chew on the rest of this. Uh, so, uh, hey, thanks, guys. And, uh, ooh, I've been practicing this. This round is on me. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Yay! Oh, that's awesome. Thanks for calling in, man. Hope- He's got an amazing... I said this last time. He has a podcaster voice. Yes, he does. Hopefully, we answer that in our discussion of this. You know, the fact that Wright came out and said this was part of Martin's ending for Bran being on the throne, but that we think it'll all play out very differently. I had mentioned that in the books, you start off with the first chapter being Bran's perspective and all these really important things happening through his eyes, Mm -hmm. how there is more importance to his warging and everything that's going on there. So yes, end game the same, but I think we're going to get a lot more of the fantasy and the magic along the way. And it'll make more sense. It'll, it'll be fleshed out a lot more. Keep in mind that there are strokes, big strokes. Yes. You know, Hey there, Matt, uh, Illinois. Uh, I just had to call in and give you a give you an update. A lot of times when I hear, I, I don't look at a lot of uh, you know who the credits are, who writes things, who directs things. I don't know. I just watch TV and, and things are good. <laughs> but I have only just this year, after watching this show from day one, known that it's not a guy that's writing these episodes named. Benny Offenweiss. <laughs> Benny Off and Weiss is the I literally learned that today. It's not some dude <laughs> Offenweiss. I don't know. He was uh, uh, a German. Uh, I'm not going to make up a backstory for him. Uh, but hey, I'm 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 glad that uh, <laughs> that the show's still giving me surprises. All right, uh, this uh, this turns on me. Well, you know, it's so funny because very often they don't call them unless you're listening to official HBO stuff, Benny Off and Weiss. The fans call them the double D's. It's a lot easier for me. But when you say it every time, you say it so fast, it sounds like Benny Often Weiss. Benny Often White. Benny Often White. (laughs) David Benioff and D.B. Weiss. Yeah, that's too hard for me to say. That's forever long. Yeah. The double Ds. So I totally feel you why you wouldn't know that. (laughs) 
Oh my goodness, I think that was a perfect way to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, this has been an amazing ride. Like we've said, having this journey together has been such a good time. Just want to reiterate one more time, don't unsubscribe to this channel because we will surprise you guys and every so often have something fun about Game of Thrones to put up. And also, we will be covering the spinoff or the, the prequel. prequel, whatever you want to call it. And we'll make another channel for that as well. But any leaks or anything like that, we'll put on here. Closer looks. We talked about we might just come back with some fun things occasionally. We just went through those book spoilery type things. There's still stuff to be mined that we haven't yet talked about. In fact, we've steered clear of a lot of that for many years. So we might just occasionally bat that around and have a good time. Either way, we hope you guys follow us to what comes next. And thank you for being with us all these years. If you're not watching Big Little Lies, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at CKC Podcast, or Facebook, Coffee Clatch Crew, so that you know the next show that's coming up, because that might be something that you want to watch. Also remember, if you're doing your shopping on Amazon, go to coffeeclatchcrew.com first, click on our Amazon link, it sends you right to the Amazon page. It doesn't cost you anymore, it just makes that huge company give us a penny to the dollar, I think it is, it's probably less than that. <laughs> but it just gives us a little bit of coffee money. Once again, thank you guys so much for this ride. We had a great time talking to you guys at the Digital Water Cooler, but our watch has ended, and until next time... This round is on me! This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.